In 2021, The Atlantic ran an article about dead internet theory, the conspiracy idea that the internet has been taken over by artificial intelligence. According to the dead internet enthusiasts, chat and communication forums are dominated by fake accounts. Likes and dislikes are not reflective of what people really think, and very little human-to-human interaction ever takes place online anymore. Well, move over, dead internet, because a ragtag team of independent journalists have been working with billionaire playboy Elon Musk to foment the fed internet, a vision of the internet as a place thoroughly infiltrated, managed, and monitored by the U.S. federal government. Is the fed internet just a conspiracy theory like the FBI recently alleged, or is it breaking news of monumental importance? Are we better fed than read, or would the internet be better dead than fed? You decide. But stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. This is a PSA. Remember Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin? They're still out there. Yes, cryptocurrency as an asset is in a painful bear market. But do you know who still uses crypto? People in Lebanon, where the consumer price index went up 140% last year. In Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Turkey, anywhere where the currency is weak or undergoing high rates of inflation, real people take their paycheck and purchase Bitcoin or stablecoin so they don't have to immediately spend their entire paycheck on car parts or salt. And it could happen here in America, too, someday. We've already had terrible inflation this past year. Now the dollar is in free fall, and we're looking at a major recession in 2023. The possibility of our own banking system and or currency becoming unreliable is distant, but all too real. And if that happens, you'll be glad you called Congress and asked them to vote no on the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2022. This act will impose onerous know-your-customer laws onto Digital asset, wallet providers, miners, validators, and other network participants basically raising the costs and barriers to smooth and efficient use of crypto. The only thing about this bill that I like is that it requires crypto ATM providers to regularly submit and update the physical location of their ATMs. That way you don't get lured into an abandoned warehouse by a fake Bitcoin ATM on Google Maps and then rob. But you know what I do? I just don't go to crypto ATMs. They charge high transaction fees. Never used one. If I needed to, I would go to Walmart or some other well-established retail location I already know has a crypto ATM and some basic security. Use your own common sense. You don't need the government looking out for you. Crypto. It's liberating. It's a powerful tool for helping the world's poor, and it's a hedge for us Americans against possible currency chaos. So what are you waiting for? Pick up the phone and dial 202-224-3121. 
and ask your representative to vote no on the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2022. Thank you. This is really important, guys. You won't regret it. All around the world they use cryptocurrency. Welcome back. I am your host, Dane. Ever since he completed his takeover of Twitter on October 27, 2022, billionaire playboy and rocket ship salesman Elon Musk has been rooting through the company's records, handing them over to independent journalists and writers. They seem to have reached some kind of agreement that the stories they generate from these records will be first presented on Twitter itself. They've now made nine releases of these so-called Twitter files from Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, Lee Fang, and authors Michael Schellenberger and David Zweig. They've all had a chance to publish at least one Twitter file, expose, on what was happening at Twitter under the old management. The first five Twitter files focused on the chaotic management of Twitter's content moderation decisions, uh, effectively discussing the controversial decision to suspend and ban President Donald Trump. But the sixth Twitter file, released December 12th, described how the FBI contacted Twitter to suggest that action be taken against a number of accounts for allegedly spreading election disinformation. And the seventh detailed interaction between Twitter employees and the U.S. intelligence community. And then the eighth showed how Twitter has been actively assisting the Pentagon in covert psychological operations aimed at foreign countries. These independent journalists found that Twitter had helped boost Arab language accounts that were designed to disseminate positive spin about U.S. military activities in the Middle East. And despite taking a very public stance against fake accounts and so-called bots, the filers reported, quote, Many emails throughout 2020 showed that high-level Twitter executives were well aware of the Department of Defense's vast network of fake accounts and covert propaganda and did not suspend the accounts. Twitter employees were also regularly meeting with the FBI and, they believe, the CIA, although they went by the name OGA, which stood for Other Government Agency. Everybody says that we all know what Other Government Agency is. And Twitter is known now to have hired at least one ex-CIA employee at the executive level. Twitter even had a semi-secret app called Teleporter that allowed U.S. security agencies to beam Twitter employees' alerts and concerns. This little app, the alert would appear... And then it would disappear. There was no way to, uh, to like make a permanent record. It was like a Snapchat. But you're getting Snapchats from the CIA. <laughs> I don't want to get Snapchats from the CIA. I don't want to get Snapchats. You know what they said? They just send dick pics, right? For their cooperation, Twitter received over $3 million in compensation from the federal government. And on December 27th, Musk himself tweeted a helpful addendum to the ninth and to date final Twitter file saying, quote, Every social media company is engaged in heavy censorship with significant involvement of and at times explicit direction of the government. Google frequently makes links disappear, for example. These so-called Twitter files indicate that the uh, eponymous social media company, by the time of the 2020 election, had become a literal paramilitary organization, a de facto propaganda censorship and manipulation wing of the U.S. security agencies. FBI, CIA were also told that Homeland Security and others were involved. And what did this paramilitary organization do besides run influence operations for the Pentagon against the Middle East? They did such things as ban private accounts at the behest of either the Trump or the Biden administration. They, during the COVID-19 pandemic crisis, suspended, shadow banned, 
various people who dissented with U.S. coronavirus public health measures. This includes such luminaries as Stanford professor Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who was blacklisted for raising questions about how school lockdowns might affect America's children. They also censored reporting on possible political corruption at the highest levels. For example, when the New York Post broke a story about evidence of shady dealings found on a laptop owned by the son of President Biden just prior to 2020's election. Twitter responded by suspending the New York Post's account and censoring links to information about the story. This was something that journalist Mac Taibbi is careful to note in his Twitter file was not done at the explicit behest of the FBI or any other U.S. intelligence agency, as far as we can tell. But multiple security agencies had previously warned Twitter about a foreign influence operation coming down the pipeline. Independently, the American journalist Glenn Greenwald has established that the FBI knew about the Hunter Biden laptop long before Rudolph Giuliani dropped it off with the New York Post. And he suggests they had the means to investigate it, verify it, show that it was not some kind of foreign psyop or influence operation, but they declined to do so, instead issuing vague warnings about an incoming influence operation seems to have led the Twitter employees then to believe that when the New York Post dropped their Hunter Biden bomb, this was it. This was the influence operation they'd been vaguely warned about. Now, much of this was already actually known, but my interpretation of these Twitter files is that under the auspices of national security, preventing threats to the Constitution by enemies foreign and domestic, Twitter built itself up into an omni-tool of the U.S. security state, and then wildly and enthusiastically went beyond its own government mandate, even breaking its own rules. Because all this involvement with the security state seems to have gotten the employees whipped up into a state of madness, where they saw even satirical accounts with only a few followers as threats to the United States. Whether those accounts were complaining about masks as face diapers or raving about Putin's skills as an amateur hockey player, in late December, the FBI responded to these Twitter files with a public statement. Quote, It is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation for the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency. That's a pretty heavy-handed thing to say. So I looked up that statement from the FBI, and here's the longer part of it. Quote, the correspondence between the FBI and Twitter show nothing more than examples of our traditional longstanding and ongoing federal government and private sector engagements, which involve numerous companies over multiple sectors and industries. End quote. And then they say the thing, quote, it is unfortunate that conspiracy theorists and others are feeding the American public misinformation with the sole purpose of attempting to discredit the agency, end quote. So the FBI is not denying that they had this sort of relationship with Twitter. They're just saying that this is pretty normal relationship between the FBI and the private sector. Now, responding to the FBI, calling him a conspiracy theorist, Elon Musk says, quote, almost every conspiracy theory, end quote, about the social network is true. This is according to an article from Sky News Australia. So he's pushing back, doubling down. So now we have credible allegations of a vast U.S. government conspiracy, unlike anything ever before seen in human history. The claim that Musk is making is that the entirety of the Internet, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, at least the Internet 2.0, the social media Internet, it's a gigantic paramilitary network. The American-owned and operated Internet is now an extension of U.S. security services. 
Well, you knew that GPS was provided by the U.S. military. Now you can also thank the U.S. government for your aunt's annoying Facebook posts. So far, I have given you my analysis of this situation. I have to give you my analysis. The Twitter files are not especially well organized. And Twitter, at the, at the time of my reporting this, Twitter itself is not very well organized. I'm actually locked out of my own Twitter account, my Spectral Skull Session account, seemingly because of a bug in the two-factor authentication system. Full disclosure, I may be getting a little bit biased. Uh, I am kind of annoyed. I paid $8 for Twitter Blue in early December, never got my check mark, and when I tried to file a complaint, I was then locked out of my account, cannot get back in. So let's move on. To get a little bit of balance here, let's go to NPR. They're a state-affiliated media organization. So what do they have to say about the Twitter files? I could only find one recent article by them, December 12th article titled, Elon Musk is using the Twitter files to discredit foes and push conspiracy theories. And they say, quote, Elon and his allies promote these tweet threads dubbed the Twitter files as bombshell revelations proving that Twitter intentionally muzzled conservatives because of their political views. That's a long-running claim by Republicans who are convinced social media companies censor them, despite ample evidence to the contrary. Twitter's internal researchers, for example, have found its algorithms favor right-leaning political content. So NPR frames the Twitter files as part of a right-wing story about censorship, which they say has been debunked. Well, maybe it's true that Twitter wasn't targeting right-wing people especially. I certainly remember 2020 when former uh, university professor Brett Weinstein tried to launch a third-party run for president under the hashtag vote no on Trump and Joe, and his Twitter accounts were censored. So I'm inclined to agree with NPR. The story here is not a story about right-wing censorship. It seems to be a broader story, and I see it as a story about the paramilitarization of the internet. Now, NPR went on to talk to a research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. What is that? I don't know. But this internet observer or research manager said, quote, what is really coming through in the Twitter files for me is people are confronting high stakes, unanticipated events and trying to figure out what policies apply and how, end quote. Yes, I think they were confronting novel, Wild West type situations in the context of becoming willing and enthusiastic deputies of the U.S. national security state. It's like the sheriff handing some random guy a badge because it's a dangerous time and they're in a dangerous place. But then he immediately rides off and starts harassing civilians, shooting at the horses. That's kind of what happened with Twitter. They, they were rounded up by these U.S. security agencies. They were going to meeting after meeting. They were even getting these mysterious Snapchat-type messages on their special apps. And then they, they kind of went hog wild with the censorship and manipulation, even building entirely new tools like shadow banning, which Twitter executives like Jack Dorsey and Yoel Roth insisted did not exist or were not used. I mean, you can really see how it's a very fuzzy situation. A Twitter, a Twitter executive or employee who's brought to account on all this can argue that they were implicitly coerced. Meanwhile, the government has plausible deniability. We never told them to censor that particular account, right? In many cases, they just kind of did things on their own. Now, the NPR article goes on to point out that we're not getting the raw data about these Twitter files. So um, NPR says Musk isn't sharing the files with the mainstream media, so that means them. Musk is only sharing this information with certain hand-picked independent journalists. 
So I think there's a, you know, we might want to take these revelations as preliminary, but I also think NPR is really missing the bigger point. The point, again, being the paramilitarization of the Internet. And the only person I know of who's trying to dig into this general issue in a promising way, Missouri Senator Eric Schmidt. He's currently suing the federal government, claiming they were pressuring Twitter illegally. That lawsuit is going through disclosure, may turn up other important pieces. But the story I've heard so far from him is that there was this St. Louis-based news service called the Gateway Pundit. His people, his legal team, thinks that the CDC or the Biden administration or some other government outfit requested for the Gateway Pundit to be deplatformed for spreading vaccine disinformation. Now, Eric Schmidt, he used to be the attorney general of Missouri. He says that would have been a First Amendment violation, although it kind of depends on how it, it went down. I looked up the First Amendment of the U.S. Bill of Rights, and it reads, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So I don't know how the First Amendment really applies since they're saying that the executive branch would be the Biden administration was pressuring Twitter. But this amendment clearly refers to Congress. So, um, you know, it's I. My plain reading of the First Amendment, I don't see how it's a First Amendment violation, but I do know that very rarely do the judges do plain readings of the Bill of Rights anymore. But I think there's really a bigger issue. I think that the whole Bill of Rights and is this a First Amendment violation is missing the point. I think a paramilitarized Internet is a total nightmare, something out of a fascist dystopian Philip K. Dick novel. It's certainly not compatible with the ideals of an open society or a decentralized society that relies on democratic processes to make decisions. So the example with Dr. J. Bhattacharya is really important. Professor J. Bhattacharya at Stanford is this uh, individual who was trying to get people excited about his proposal that we send children back to school, wrote this document that was circulating called the Great Barrington Declaration, which advocated lifting COVID-19 restrictions on lower-risk groups. In order to develop herd immunity through infection, this document came out October 2020. And he had one of these visibility filters or shadow bans on him for some time. Think about why was he agitating for change on Twitter in the first place? Well, part of that was that he was being a good pro-social person and he was following the rules. So he may not have even agreed with some of those social distancing rules. It sounds like he's not that kind of person. But a lot of us during that time thought the rules are in some sense democratically legitimated because if enough people agreed with us that they should be changed, they would be. And since those rules included not meeting up with people in person, the way to change people's minds was on the Internet. But now if you're a pro-social dissenter on the Internet, you are a complete and total chump because you you thought the right thing to do was to stay home and participate in the town square virtually. But in fact, there was somebody at Twitter who was just going to flip a little switch and make your voice go away. And remember, Elon Musk is saying that everything that happened at Twitter happened at all the other social media companies, too. Under conditions of aggressive shadow banning of people who agitate against coronavirus restrictions, there was no way to even know that people didn't agree with pandemic restrictions. The only way to fight was to be a lawbreaker. It was actually a situation where civil disobedience was the morally appropriate response, but you didn't know that because you didn't know you were being shadow banned. 
the evil of that. It's hard for me to see how that sort of manipulation could fail to damage society by engendering widespread distrust of institutions. I think the harms go beyond the destabilization of American society, but actually go around the world. When I was in Georgia, I met expats from all over who told me that they had learned valuable skills, monetizable skills that started off by just playing around on the American internet. So just things like watching YouTube videos and eventually they learned English and then they learned how to do things that they could do for money, which allowed them to leave their country and move to Georgia. And so if the internet is just totally controlled by U.S. security services, they fully embedded and taken it over, um, they give foreign countries a strong national interest reason to disconnect from the internet, right? Even if that hurts their own citizens. So it's interesting to me that we're not seeing big name publications like the Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, right, etc., covering the enormity of this story. And that might itself be a reason to pause and recognize the tentative nature of these Twitter files. Um, it is possible that Musk is selectively feeding information to these independent journalists. Maybe he's giving them just things that, you know, that look really bad and he's withholding you know, mitigating evidence. It could be that some of these Twitter engineers who stayed with Musk after the old management left, maybe they've had a bone to pick. And so they've just been cherry picking data, taking screenshots of the worst conversations, just kind of collecting all the things that supports their own view that there was a uh, censorship regime in league with the U.S. security services. But maybe it's also breaking news. And maybe I'm the only person breaking the Fed internet theory. This is the theory that the internet is basically controlled by federal agents. And if it's breaking news and I'm the only one covering it, then uh, thanks very much for listening. You know, I think the practical takeaway here is probably to get off the internet. Until next time, stay strange, stay sane. <laughs>